Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch Podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, I will be joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters for this session shakedown segment. Lauren catches up with Senator Ginny Lyons for our deep dive conversation about legislation that will further prevent harmful toxics from consumer goods. And later, I'll speak with Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale about the 15 years of work she has put forward of environmental activism and what her legislative focus is will be on this biennium. But first, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide some feedback? Email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Before I'm joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters for our session shakedown segment, I wanted to take time to thank Representative Kate Donnelly of Hyde Park for boldly advocating for herself and her family by resigning from her position as state representative. She announced last week that Friday, January 27th, would be her final day in the legislature. Donnelly stated that the work became an impossible juggling act, asking you to forego money, stability of schedule, accessibility to family, and more with little regard to the mental, emotional, and familial toll that these demands require. Donnelly had an environmental score of 100 with VCV and was serving her second term. In May of 2020, I met Kate Donnelly for the first time over the phone. As it was still fairly early in the pandemic, it would be the first of many phone calls as she enlisted my help to launch her campaign for state representative. We talked for about an hour that first time. Uh, A queer parent's perspective and voice representing my home county of Lamoille was so needed and something that I was willing to do almost anything for. I said yes, and we became fast friends, having late-night voice memo conversations about music, pop culture, queerness, gender identity, nerdy habits and hobbies, and recovery. That's when we weren't discussing the campaign work of website edits and ad creation, letters to the editor, and postcard writing. I didn't even meet her in person until an outdoor community event in Johnson several months later, I think after the primary. And that November, they won the election. And I honestly didn't have to do too much. My role was very much so behind the scenes. Kate is such an authentic, thoughtful, and meaningful person. So she connected with voters in ways that hadn't really been experienced before for her district. She hand wrote hundreds of postcards to connect with voters when door knocking had become a public health threat. It was really no wonder she was the top vote getter. The district saw her leadership. When the session began, I became a near daily presence at the state house. The first week gave me the newish job, back to school type jitters, and I was really fortunate that I had already built connections to legislators outside of my role. It really helped me feel more at ease. 
and getting to see Kate was always a special part of my day. I knew this day was coming, so I think I appreciated those quick moments even more, whether it was a funny story in the cafeteria line or a simple wave as I walked past the House Judiciary Committee room. I know her decision to step down from serving was not an easy one, and the timing was not as planned, but I am so proud that she was able to make the best decision for her and her family. I'm especially grateful for my former representative, Lucy Rogers, for making the initial connection happen and for giving me such a good friend. Now let's get into our session shakedown segment where Lauren and I recap more of what happened last week and look a little bit towards this coming week of the session as well. All right, Lauren, S5, the Affordable Heat Act. Things are heating up around this topic, huh? What is going on? Well, the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee has been almost entirely focused on really digging into this policy, which again was the, um, you know, one of the marquee recommendations of our state's climate action plan to get us on track to cut climate pollution and transition people to clean heating solutions. And this past week, um, the governor and the administration really came out um, in a much more aggressive oppositional posture to this bill. So I think people were a little bit surprised and are trying to uh, get ready to, you know, make the merits of, of the case of this policy that, you know, for VCB's perspective, um, we think is a really important and positive step forward. Yeah. Was there like, is there a lot of misinformation going around? Um... Well, the administration came out with essentially claiming that it was going to be really expensive to implement this bill. And they acknowledged that the analysis that the state um, had professionals conduct shows that it's going to be a long-term, a huge amount of savings for the state to implement the policy. But they were trying to focus people's attention on the fact that, you know, it takes money in the initial stages to, you know, if someone, for example, is going to put heat pumps in their home to replace um, an oil boiler, then that takes money. So they're saying, you know, this is going to be a, a cost to people to make this transition. And so they're really focused on that as opposed to the fact that once you have those heat pumps and the state could do things like provide incentives to help make that affordable um, for Vermonters and that over the long term they would save money. Um, but so they've really tried to shine a spotlight on that upfront cost of transitioning people to, uh, to new technologies. What do you think this means for the future of the Affordable Heat Act? I think, you know, it puts the puts the onus on the advocates like us to really be clear of, you know, why this policy is important, um, why, you know, we think it's it's going to be a huge net benefit to Vermonters to have a policy that is focused on helping them transition to what are long term, more affordable um, and cost effective and cleaner and uh, less polluting uh, heating solutions. So I think it just, you know, we're going to have to do our work uh, twice as hard to to, uh, to make sure that people understand, you know, what the benefits are and not just focus on um, some of the upfront costs. Well, we're ready for that. Um, and there's been a lot of active discussion around the Senate housing bill as well. Uh, what's the chatter surrounding that been like? I mean, overall, they're still kind of working through the bill. And I think, 
you know, rightly and understandably. There's, There's just, just been a lot of, um, you know, really trying to to dig into what's a pretty broad bill looking at how do we make it uh, have policies that are really going to encourage us to be able to have more people in our downtowns, in our compact communities? And, you know, do we have the right policies proposed and in place um, that we can get more people into the places where we want them so that we can have that all those benefits of smart growth housing so we can make sure that there is available and accessible and affordable housing for folks um, while also doing that in ways that, you know, more people are living in walkable and um, accessible communities, which helps our environment as well as helping people access housing. Yes. And keep listening because Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale touches upon that when I talk to her a little later in this episode. Um, and we, speaking of teases, uh, we teased a lot over the course of the last few episodes uh, about the 30 by 30 bill. Uh, and it looks like we'll finally see some action and movement this week. Uh, what are you hearing and seeing from the House Environment and Energy Committee? This week, they're going to be taking a lot of testimony, really digging into that bill. So again, setting a a target of the state conserving 30% of its lands by 2030 and half by 2050. And so they're going to be looking at, you know, what does that mean? And how do we set up a process for figuring out how we actually do that as a state? So that conversation will be ramping up significantly. So that's exciting to see. Awesome. Um, And I had the chance to sit in on the Senate Government Ops Committee last week, and Senator Ruth Hardy introduced her bill that would allow ranked choice voting for the 2024 presidential primary. Hardy highlighted how ranked choice voting expands democracy, allowing for more votes and voices to count. And this is particularly important in presidential primaries for Vermonters, as by the time that we vote in March, some candidates on the ballot may have dropped out, or when there are multiple candidates, eliminating the lowest vote getters and then taking those ballots, second or third choice candidates and awarding them to the remaining candidates until one candidate crosses the majority threshold. And this is a voting method that really works well when there are more than two candidates. Uh, Ring choice voting is already in action in Alaska and Maine for both federal and state races. And then in Vermont, it is an option at the municipal level with Burlington using the method right now. Those opposed to the bill say that the education implementation would take too long to properly do ahead of the 2024 primaries and that it would slow results reporting in smaller towns where votes are still hand counted. Uh, The Senate Health and Welfare Committee is taking its first look at a toxics bill this week. And last Friday, you, Lauren, had the chance to chat with the chair of that committee, Senator Ginny Lyons, to talk a little bit more about it. Let's hear that conversation now. Well, I am absolutely delighted to be here with Senator Ginny Lyons, who I have had the pleasure of working with for a number of years, really working to create a healthier Vermont and safer communities. And so welcome, Senator Lyons. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So really just wanted to start by um, getting a little bit of background from you on you know, when we work together, it's often been addressing toxic chemical issues. And can you just tell folks a little bit about, you know, what problem are we trying to solve here? Well, I think we're trying to save our future. You know, honestly, <laughs> <Just that. laughs> yeah, uh, the, there's a wonderful book 
called Our Stolen Future. And when you read that book, you realize how really susceptible humans and and other living things are to the toxins that are released into the environment from the consumer products that we have. So we've been working together now a long time to remove those toxins and uh, keep us and living organisms from harm's way. So I look at our work as public health and the environment. It's very excited about the bills that we have passed recently. You know, we go back a, a bit of a ways, phthalates, DECA, BPA, but most recently uh, eliminating PFAS from uh, various consumer products, whether it's food containers or firefighters foam. Uh, it's been a it's been a terrific, <clears throat> a, really a terrific opportunity for us to move forward. And this year, the bill that we have is looking at uh, personal care products, so menstrual mm-hmm. products and cosmetics. And how can we really how can we keep some of these chemicals that are really toxic to to us and then get released in our shower water or mm-hmm. our sewer right. and can come in contact with um, our waterways and then other living organisms. So for me, this is a really exciting opportunity to, to take a next step forward. Yeah, I totally agree. It's This is one of those issue areas that the more you learn about what the federal government does and doesn't do, the more you realize how important it is for states to act because there's so few regulations on toxic chemicals. So it's so hard to to ban and restrict chemicals. And Vermont has been a national leader. We have modeled many bills and Senator Lyons has been right there at the forefront. And so I'm so grateful for the leadership that she has played on this And back in 2016, when we found PFAS in people's drinking water in Bennington, I think it was a real wake-up call. It was something that you had been working on for years already, but it kind of woke people up to this issue. This is a great, uh, really important to bring up, because prior to that event in Bennington, people were very skeptical and thinking about, oh, we're going to really destroy business by Mm -hmm. uh, focusing in on some of these chemicals that are, you know, so important for modern living. But then PFAS happened in the water, yeah. in the groundwater in Bennington. And all of a sudden, we, we collectively understand that what we do can have a real del- deleterious, real negative effect mm-hmm. on, on our lives. And I'm glad you brought up the federal government mm-hmm. because they really should be acting more progressively in this yeah, area. Absolutely. You know, and, I wish that the federal government would stop putting barriers in our way and yeah. would allow for us to go forward. I, I know we there's preemption right now on labeling, mm-hmm. so the state can't mandate labeling uh, for some of these chemicals, and that's really ludicrous. Yeah, uh, we need people need to know what they're buying and what they're using. Uh, but beyond that, at least at this point, we can continue to regulate what chemicals are included. And yeah, well, and that's that. yeah, yeah, that's that's so important. So 
really excited to see action this year on trying to get a suite of some of the most toxic chemicals like PFAS out of personal care products, menstrual products, uh, textiles. You know, we'll look at we'll look at what we can well, <laughs> what we can get these there. products out. Yeah, of. yeah. yeah. But, you know, I've also heard uh, from some of the advocates in the building that the chemicals that we're looking at, in particular in, in cosmetics, that I'm knocking on wood. I mean, it's knock on wood. Okay, but, we did it. <laughs> you know, that um, there won't be a hue and cry against what we're trying to do. I think there's a realization right mm -hmm. now uh, that manufacturer or, or um, com companies can actually make money by having green products. Yeah. How's yeah, that? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, good. Well, we're really excited to work with you on this bill. And again, just so grateful for your long leadership. And well, let me just say thank you yeah. to you. Uh, Vermont Conservation Voters is is another is the leader in our state now. And you've the education that you've provided uh, for legislators in this building is huge. Uh, so it, I just really look forward to working with a number of folks, including you. Thanks. Well, thank you. It is a pleasure. And we'll be back to check in with you again, I'm sure, later in the year. But thanks for making the time. Thank you. All right. Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale of Shelburne served in the Vermont House of Representatives on behalf of Burlington from 2008 to 2016. Before she was elected, she authored a bill in 2007 that tied economic and racial justice to environmental justice, which she worked to introduce in the Vermont legislature as a college senior. That experience spurred her to run for the state house in 2008. She made history as the youngest state legislator in the country at the time and the first person of color ever elected to represent Burlington. In 2020, she made history again as the first woman of color ever elected to the Vermont State Senate. There, Keisha has used her deep legislative background to support Vermont's working families and advance climate action. Please welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast, my friend, Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. It's a privilege to be here. It's only fitting that I would have you on early in this podcast life because, as I'm sure you remember, you were one of our first guests on The Tea, which is a program that I did in 2017 with Taylor Small on Vermont Community Access Media. Well, I've always appreciated the ways that you've used our local ability to tell stories and communicate um, to really make sure that unheard voices are being represented. So uh, always a privilege to join you for these conversations and glad you are where you are doing this work. Uh, well, I always appreciate your willingness to lend your expertise and voice to any project that I do. Um, and I wanted to use our time together to sort of remind listeners who I'm sure are already familiar with you, but just to remind them of all the work that you've done the past 15 years for equitable environmental action. So I'm going to start off and ask you to sort of frame up the environmental justice bill that you introduced all those years ago, and then maybe share the progress and any action that's been made since. Yeah, I mean, this work on advancing environmental justice in Vermont um, probably started long before me. You know, in, in many ways, it just wasn't called environmental justice. You've had indigenous uh, fish inns to be able to continue to have the Abenaki uh, access their fishing rights in our state uh, rivers and waterways. You have mobile home park residents who've been fighting for clean drinking water and um, the ability to have, uh, you know, functioning, safe place to live. 
Um, you have migrant farm workers who've been a part of Vermont's backbone for so long in our dairy industry and um, the the things that make Vermont the state that it is and, the, and give it the brand that it has. Um, what I did when I started my work as a college sophomore at the University of Vermont is just start to gather those stories, start to look at where we had super fun sites and who lived around them, um, start to better understand why we had cancer clusters or higher rates of asthma in Rutland, where people had sidewalks or didn't have sidewalks. And um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, I wish it wasn't the first time anyone had sort of tried to pull all that work together. But certainly when I was a student doing that research, it all was in different places. No one had pulled this narrative together and reminded people that all of these issues are interrelated, that there is a rural and urban coalition um, developed around where you have lower income people and people of color, you end up having uh, you know, worse environmental quality and worse health outcomes. And so, you know, I did, I wrote a hundred page thesis on that topic as a senior at the University of Vermont. Um, I had a good friend who was the only person in her twenties, I believe in the legislature at the time, Rachel Weston. And she helped me turn that into a bill when I was a senior. Um, and I think that part's really important because I know that a growing, uh, you know, a, a growing chunk of the the environmental leaders in the state are young people um, and their sense of urgency is well placed um, and they need us to you know begin to give them space to lead and I had that opportunity when I was very young and it led me to running for the legislature um, so you know that helped me understand that I really can make a difference introducing an environmental justice bill and I got to the legislature and worked on that bill for the next 15 years. <laughs> so, you know, at the same time, I want young people to hear you can make a difference, but change is slow, um, especially if you're centering equity. You know, Vermont exceptionalism was a huge part of my thesis that um, if Vermont believes it doesn't have these problems because it's it's green, it's forested, um, and it's largely white, then um, we are missing out on the opportunity to uh, comply with the Federal Civil Rights Act and to actually advance true environmental justice that ensures those who have least access to the environment are most centered in the solutions about how to redistribute environmental costs and benefits. Yeah, and I really love how you frame equity in so much of the work that you do as well. And I know that we talked with Representative Seth Bongards last week about a housing equity bill that he's introducing in the House. Um, and we also took the time to highlight, you know, that you had met with us and, and walked through a similar bill in the Senate. Um, are you able to sort of just frame to the listeners why you in the Senate would introduce a bill while one is being introduced in the House, and then um, what those, how those two bills are separate, um, and what's yeah, just what's the goal in doing that? Is there strategy? Yeah, I mean, it's I don't want to get us too much into the inside baseball of the legislature, but um, you know, housing has often been a subject that has been a political football, and it hasn't lived properly in one committee or another. Um, in, in both the House and the Senate, you have um, considerations about the safety of housing or the, the um, nature and quality of housing or renters' rights. Those issues often go to the Housing Committee, but where housing is located has often gone to the environmental committees. Um, and it's, it's, it makes sense that both have this jurisdiction. But if both don't share that jurisdiction properly, 
then nothing happens and we don't get housing built in the places where it does make sense environmentally and from a climate perspective. Um, and we, you know, then don't have housing that is available to everyone. Um, if the legislature doesn't take this responsibility on, then developers build where they can do it most uh, cost effectively and, um, you know, where there might be less regulation. And so we keep taking over green spaces, even if that's the unintended consequence of inaction from our, uh, cha any changes to Act 250 or to local zoning. Um, we have to recognize that Vermont does have climate immigrants right now. I moved here from Los Angeles. I consider myself a climate immigrant. I wanted my children to have a different environmental experience than I did in Los Angeles. People move here because of how well we plan and because of the beauty of our uh, communities and our area. So Vermont doesn't look the way it does by accident is what I like to say. And I do credit Act 250 and our, uh, our strong sense of smart growth and planning with a lot of that work. But we're now at a, a crisis point. Um, so I could frame it in a number of different ways, starting with the reality that through the pandemic, our existing housing shortage that was, some would have already called a crisis was highly exacerbated. People are not leaving their homes. Um, people don't have anywhere to transfer to, let's say they are an older Vermonter and they would like to downsize right now in Vermont, 70% of our households are two people or less. And I really want that to sink in for people. We have lots of large historic homes. They take a lot to heat. They take a, you know, they, they need a lot of transportation for you to get from our, our small hamlets to the population centers. And right now, those are two-person households. Um, so, you know, both Representative Bongarts and I looked at this issue and knew that we had to help bring this crisis home for our colleagues and help them understand in both the House and the Senate that there is a housing crisis at all. And I really want the, the listeners to be able to hear and absorb that too. Vermont's homeless population is three times what it was before the pandemic. And it's not just that we have more homeless people, it's that they are uh, homeless for, instead of 50 days on average before the pandemic, 270 days. When a family is homeless and sleeping out of their car for almost a year, uh, that leads to a lifetime of ill health effects and mental health issues and just being behind from an educational and economic perspective. Um, and at the same time, we do have people moving to Vermont because D.C. is getting too hot or the political climate and the social reality of the South is becoming scarier and scarier for them. Let's say if they have a trans child or, um, you know, are a gay couple. So, you know, people want to move to Vermont and it shouldn't be that only the wealthiest can live in Vermont when it becomes a, a, a potential climate haven, um, you know, coming out of uh, the changes we're already seeing in, um, in our climate. We need to make sure that we plan well because we're not just planning for every Vermonter who is here now to have a place to live. But if we plan for the climate immigrants and refugees we can expect in the next few years, we need to build 40,000 units of housing by 2030. And uh, if we don't do that in a way that's planned and involves smart growth, it will just happen haphazardly and green space will get taken up and we won't meet climate principles and transportation equity principles that we want to live by. Um, so, you know, we are starting the bill in the Senate. I now am the chair of Senate Economic Development, Housing and General Affairs. I'm probably the last legislator left who served on the housing committee, both in the House and the Senate. Um, I started in the legislature as a renter. And now, you know, I'm a proud homeowner and I, 
and know what it takes to to really find that access to capital and to find a place for yourself that's permanent in Vermont. And I want others to have a place to call home as well. So the housing bill will start in the Senate with some of Senate uh, with some of Representative Bongart's good ideas from his House bill with other reforms that we're looking at, like lifting the cap on affordable housing in our downtowns, which is good for um, the environment and our transportation plans as well. Um, and and it helps us build affordable housing where it's designated to, to exist. Um, and in addition to that, we're looking at funding a lot of programs that matter a lot to me and to others around um, mobile home parks and first generation home ownership access, just really making sure that those who are most vulnerable um, and those who would be most likely to be pushed out of the housing market get whatever help they can from the state to be able to stay here and find a place to call home. I I am really I'm listening to you and I'm I'm wondering now does as you're about to bring new life into this world and you touched upon it a little bit in your answer but does in just a few matter of months you're going to have you know a daughter and how has that helped sort of guide your priorities for this biennium Yeah so um you know for those who are are newly tuning in at home to this information um you know I'm the first pregnant legislator in about 20 years. Uh, I, if all goes well, um, my daughter is due May 10th, um, which is about the time we end the legislative session. So it's been a very, uh, it, it's been a part of the everyday reality of, of serving in the legislature this year. Um, but it's also been a really, really important reminder that it takes a lot of resources and, um, you know, partnership social capacity to be able to bring a child into this world and know that they're going to have what they need to be safe and loved and cared for. Um, you know, it, it first and foremost makes me a stronger advocate of choice and um, someone's right to choose whether and how to bring a child into this world, because you really have to want this. Um, you know, it's a lot of sleepless nights. It's a, it's a lot of, uh, you know, resources that you have to find to make sure that, that you can build a nursery and, you know, figure out the childcare situation, which is impossible, do this all while losing income. Um, so, you know, it's hard enough economically to have a child, but then to think about, you know, how nice it is that I can plan a future where they can potentially walk to school one day, um, where they have natural spaces around them, where they can enjoy the Vermont that I've known that I, you know, moved across the country to experience and where, you know, their father grew up on a dairy farm. Um, I want there to be a lasting sense of what Vermont is that my child can enjoy and experience. And I want that for other children too. Um, you know, I hope what doesn't happen is that I get pretty myopic on my own child's experience. And then I continue to remember that I spent 10 years in the legislature thinking about all of our children as precious and important and deserving of clean air and clean water and a safe place to live and you know, I hope um, my, my child will, will experience that, but that I don't forget how important that is for every child in Vermont to experience. Well, Keisha, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy mo Monday morning to talk with me. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next 15 years. You'll have a teenager, but of all the work that you'll do, continuing to push these efforts forward and making Vermont a better place for future generations. Thanks so much, Justin. It was great all to right, be here. Take 
Now it's time for our climate stat of the week. 165 billion. That's how much climate change-fueled extreme weather events cost the United States in 2022 alone. According to a report released earlier this month by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the U.S. experienced 18 extreme weather events last year, with each one costing at least $1 billion in damage. 2022 was the third costliest year on record, with major disasters ranging from hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, flooding, widespread drought, and severe storms. This figure highlights the enormous economic and societal toll that these events have, which are expected to only intensify due to climate change. I want to thank our guests, Senator Ginny Lyons and Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale, as well as Lauren Hurl, for assisting me. We will be back next Monday for a new episode of the Democracy Dispatch. I'll be chatting with three legislators in their 20s about what it is like to serve in the legislature as a young person. Until next time, thanks for listening.